0: I would ask you to turn your Bibles to a particular passage this morning, but we are going to be all over the Bible this morning, so uh, just have them ready. We are currently taking a break from the book of John. We've covered all the way up through John chapter 10, and we're going to be getting back into John in a few weeks as we finish this series on the purpose of the church. And I've enjoyed this series, but I'm also ready to get back into uh, John and hearing from the word in each context that John brings us to. Before we begin, let me pray for us this morning. Lord, I pray that the Spirit would come, and for those of our hearts that are hardened this morning, that maybe have not been soft to the calling to, to repent and, and find our need and our hope in the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would soften that heart. And Lord, for the weary heart that's tired and beaten down and is and struggling, God, I pray that the Spirit would come through the Word and, and strengthen that heart this morning. And God, I pray that through the word this morning that we as a body would be unified, that we would be eager to maintain this unity so that the work of the Spirit would continue to strengthen and encourage our faith this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when you have the opportunity to describe your church, which I'm sure most of you have had that opportunity to say, hey, you should come to my church. This is what my church is like. What is the first impression you try to implant into that person's mind when you're speaking with them? What is it that you want them to be visioning? That most likely will be what you see as the purpose of the church. You should visit my church because, and then you would give that explanation. That's there. Uh, This morning there was, I won't mention who it is, but there was a person that's here that got uh, a little confused on where the location of our church was and walked in and was a little confused by what they saw, and they thought, hmm, I don't think John's here. And they began to ask where I was, and they realized they were at the wrong church, and they had to go a couple, couple doors down. Now you know you're in Spring Hill in the South, because there's churches everywhere. Uh, but from the messages that she heard didn't quite meet, or he, the messages that they heard, didn't quite meet what it is that they were looking for. When you walk into a particular scenario, you're expecting something, right? For instance, when you walk into a restaurant, you're expecting to eat, or if you to walk into a movie theater, you're expecting to be entertained, or if you walk into a gym, the purpose of the gym is to work out, or, in other cases, to be shamed by others. What is the purpose of church then? Can we all agree, or can all the Christendom agree what is the purpose of the church? You see, it's not as simple as these others because it depends on who you ask and and what the context of it is. Not everybody agrees on what the purpose of the church is. Now, if we all went to a restaurant to watch movies, and we went to a movie theater to work out, We would probably be confused by the scenario we find ourselves in, right? That is not the purpose of a restaurant. That's not the purpose of a movie theater. It would be amazing if we could go to movie theaters and somehow get a workout at the same time. I would definitely go to more movies. But Christians, year after year, grow tired, rightfully so, and disenfranchised by the church because they see little to no value offered. The purpose is given, and yet when they participate in the purpose, it isn't affecting them in the way in which it's being described. So, over time, they either fake, right? We've all been in a context where you have to fake your joy, you have to fake your excitement, or you just don't go, or you go begrudgingly. Now, Sure, there, there might... And in, this, and in these churches, a lot of times, what has really drawn people in is community and that's what they advertise come be a part of a community where you can fit in there's significance we have a community for all ages and this is and it really becomes in all reality it's a, a social club and frankly speaking there is less drama and more genuineness in an actual social club than what we can find in a church and the reason is is that In a religious context, people tend to judge or easily criticize or even, I would say, take advantage or abuse relationships within the church. So it makes it complicated. At the end of the day, in the majority of churches today, church is about what you have brought to God from the effort of your week. So your obedience, your good works, financial offering are presented before God in his attempt to sometimes appease him or appease your conscience and hopefully encourage God or invoke God in some special blessing upon your life. So obedience equals God's blessings. Now listen, our dear brothers and sisters who are trapped in what I would say this kind of a context, um, they don't really ever see or taste the sweet, filling, of the Spirit's power as the Word of God is washed over them. It's more of, here's instructions on how to do better what you failed in this week, instead of, here is how Christ was better than you could ever be, how He was perfect where you were not. Now listen, I do not want us as a church to judge other churches for w- what do we have at this church that we have not received, right? I, I think they're confused, and I, and I honestly believe that they are trying to do what is right. Right? I think there are charlatans out there, sure, there's the prosperity gospel that's out there, and, the, and there are people who see that billions can be made, and they change the message to make that. But I'm not talking about that context. I'm talking about real believers in, in in this world who are trying to do what's right, but yet when it comes to the Bible stating the purpose of the church have gotten confused because over time and history and sin and confusion... We've shifted into what I would say an advertising style of Christianity instead of a word focused style of Christianity. So they have not, what I, as Paul says, they have not been properly brought up into the meat of the word. Let me just read this through real quick. Paul says to the Ephesians, It's important that you be trained, it's important that the word of God be washed over you, it's important that you have elders that are trained and teachers that are trained. Why? Uh, Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by everyone to doctrine. Every teaching that comes into our context, it pushes us all around by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the, the thing about the warning from the New Testament to the believer from Satan is that he doesn't want you to believe a lie completely. He just needs you to believe half a truth. Because half a truth is the best lie, right? It's the most convincing lie. He doesn't want you to deny God. He doesn't want you to deny salvation. He just wants you to be confused on the details of it so that you don't find the hope that's in there. And, is, and a confused Christian it is not a very confident Christian. And a confident Christian is not one that necessarily wants to publicly share Christ with each other and with the world. Now, I have a strong desire to bring people the hope of the gospel, not only in our church context, but anyone that we can, in any, any, in any location that we can. Now, I don't stand on the ground of success. I don't have this desire because I stand here and I can tell you I'm a very successful church planner. I'm a very successful pastor. Here is, here is why you should hear what I have to say and why we should do church this way. I have not built a massive congregation. I have not done anything that would say in the, in the public's eye, John is one to be trusted, and John's methods are really good. Listen, you don't want my methods, because my method is no different than anybody else if it doesn't come from Scripture. So I simply stand and trust in the power of God's Word to do God's work for God's people. It's very clear that God has assimilated us together, and he's given us very clear instructions, and he says, my power lies within my instructions. My power does not lie within your wisdom, which is First Corinthians. So the wisdom of man is the foolishness to God, right? So I have a desire for nothing more than to see you all grow in your faith and to love and trust Jesus Christ more. That's all I desire for you. And that's really my commission from God to you. And I believe the Bible is, the, is very clear that this is the purpose of the church. This is why we come together and that he has given us these means by which to accomplish this purpose, right? So last week we saw from scripture that the primary means of God's strengthening the believer's faith is through the public preaching and teaching of God's word. Not that the personal time in the word is of no value. It's a great question I received this week. But, or that the personal reading of God's word should be diminished. But I have it on very good authority that, to state that the Bible requires us to rest our sanctification. So the way in which we are transformed, the way in which we grow. And our growth in faith and obedience by means, the way in which this happens is by means of the word of God ministered publicly through the preaching and teaching of God's word. The church does not hold the authority. So, me and the elders, we do not hold any type of authority over you other than the authority that comes through God's word alone. So, it's not my word or my wisdom or my authority that you should rest upon. You should never, if I come to you and I try and and get you to do something because I think you should do it and I have authority over you, I do not have authority except for that to minister and protect God's word. But this is what Paul points out. As the public word of God is being taught and preached to you, your responsibility as a congregation is then to receive it and verify it. For instance, he says in Acts 17.11, Now these Jews were more noble, talking about the the Bereans, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Do you understand the difference? They were not examining the scriptures so that they could grow or that they could do something in the eyes of God before, that they had received it and they wanted to confirm it in their hearts and their minds that it was true. They wanted to make sure what they were hearing was accurate. Now, in that time... They had, you have, a, you have uh, Jews who are living underneath the law, and now they're being told to live underneath Christ. It was so earth-shattering that there's a side of them that's saying, we need to verify that this is true. This is so, so different from what we're hearing. So study Scripture to see if the truths brought to you by the church are true. Make sure that they're lining up. Why? Because it will only confirm in your heart what you've received publicly. But as this quote I quoted last week from Calvin, don't be so foolish to think that you only need your own personal time. Or I would even go as far to say is, don't place the priority of your sanctification, your growth, the strengthening of your faith in your personal reading of the Word of God. Nowhere in Scripture does it put that much emphasis. I am not diminishing Bible reading. I'm just putting the public preaching of the Word of God back where it belongs. For instance, let me just read to you real quick. uh, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, it says, And let us consider how to stir one another up into love and good works. And how does that happen? Publicly. And not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's an emphasis on be getting together and be doing it even more as Christ Return gets closer. Well, let me ask you this. Are we closer to Christ's return now than they were? Yeah, but like 2,000 years closer. (laughs) The emphasis is as the time of Christ's return draws near, the emphasis of a church finding ways to stir that love and to stir that encouragement up into each other is to intensify. Unfortunately, in the industrial age, what has happened is that we have been separated in our culture, and then you throw technology in there. Industrialism is not bad, and technology is not bad. We use, we use it constantly. But what has happened is, is it's individualized our relationships. And anytime I go to Google to look for anything about faith, it's immediately seven ways to make your faith stronger. And it's always about you personally these are the personal things you can do and it's an emphasis not on god's word proclaimed and received that's designed in the new testament but it's on here's what you can discipline yourself in here's what you can do as far as the word of god here are ways to study god's word so the emphasis is on you not on the body the purpose of the church So this week we're going to look at the second part of the means given to the church to accomplish this purpose. So last week it was the public teaching and preaching God's word. And last week, this is the purpose that I gave us, just to remind us. So the purpose of the church is this, to strengthen the believer's faith for the work of ministry. To strengthen the believer's faith for the work of ministry. So so when I describe community to people, when I want to invite them here... I tell them, listen, we have a strong emphasis on the preaching and teaching and the encouragement around God's word. We really want you to see Jesus Christ as the only hope through the gospel. And from that, we have men's and women's Bible studies and opportunities for you to minister not only to this church, but to the people around us. And that's how I like to describe our church, because I feel like it lines up with Scripture. To strengthen the believer's faith for the work of ministry. So this week, we're going to continue... This part where we're covering what does it mean to strengthen the believer's faith, right? We get this wording uh, from Ephesians, which we're going to look into a little bit more next week. So this week we're going to go look at the second part. So first we said there's two means of grace that's given to the church for the strength of their faith, preaching of the word. Second means is the word that we use called sacraments. Now I know uh, the word may be foreign to many of you, some of you are uh, used to hearing maybe the word ordinance. You've got the ordinances of the baptism in the Lord's table and sacraments maybe sounds more Roman Catholic to you. Uh, there's a lot of words that the Roman Catholics have uh, used and I think have changed the meaning. Just so you know, have got a good illustration of this. The word Catholic is not a bad word. Now we hear Catholic and we think, oh... Anti Christianity or not Protestantism, but the word Catholic just means universal. That's all it means. (laughs) It has no special meaning to it than other universal. And you and I are part of the Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church, the one that's in Rome and that theology that comes out. You and I are part of the universal body of believers. If you trust in Jesus Christ and you've been baptized into Christ, you are a part of this church that belongs to Jesus, right? So you're part of the Catholic Church. So Unfortunately, because of confusion around theology, that word is not always used in that sense. Same thing that I think it goes with uh, sacraments. Now, I understand this concern, and sometimes uh, this word um, is confusing. I want to put it in its rightful place, so it's helpful. Sacraments is an old Latin word that gives the idea of something that is sacred and holy. It's kind of two words brought together that gives the idea of sacred and holy. But there's also a side of it within the word It gives a sense of mystery. An ordinance is helpful. I mean, it's a command given by Jesus. But the word sacrament, being that it's sacred and mysterious, kind of encapsulates really what's going on as far as this means of grace, meaning this, the a sacrament. And I would say that the two ordinances given to us by Christ would fit into this category of holy, right? It's set apart. Baptism and um, the Lord's table is definitely holy. It's very different, right? It's separate from anything else that's in the world as it relates to believers. And mysterious, which we're going to talk about today, there is a mystery that's surrounding them. And we're going to speak, uh, we will look from Scripture, what does that mean today? So, what are the sacraments and what are their purpose? If we have two means of grace given to the the believer the preaching, the public of God's word, and then the baptism and the table, what are their purposes within the believer's faith? To give you a brief answer, I want to provide a very helpful definition from John Calvin and then unpack for us the significance of this statement. It says here, he says here, as relates to a definition of of the Lord's table and baptism. They are an outward sign by which the Lord seals on our conscience the promise of his goodwill to us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. That is the purpose of baptism in the Lord's table, is to sustain the weakness of our faith. In the same way the public preaching and teaching of God's word strengthen the weakness of our heart and our faith, and we come, especially our church, I believe, we come eager to hear what does God have for us. And as I mentioned last week, when God's word is presented purely as God's word, that can be trusted according to 1 Timothy and 1 Peter, that can be trusted to be the actual words of God, not mine. Right? So when God's word is presented, we can receive them and be strengthened in our faith because it is actual God's words being poured over us. So to help us, just, to help us understand just how vital and important the sacraments are, the baptism and the table, we are going to look at four scriptural observations regarding these. So we're going to look at the Bible and see what the Bible has to tell us as far as our relationship to baptism and our relationship to the table. Now, my goal for us this morning is that when we come to remember your baptism and when you come to the table, you find the needed rest and strength that they were designed to give you. Most people, when they think about baptism, it's what they did in their past. It's kind of like if you're a Christian, that's the certificate that you have to have. And in the Lord's table, it is a remembrance and it's something that you do. But the significance or the mystery behind it is lost. And this morning, we're from Scripture, we're going to regain that. So, I pray for some of you that you find not only the joy of your baptism, but the necessity of it. Some of you that need to be baptized for the first time, and also the joy of every week when we come to the table. So here are the four scriptural observations for us. Baptism and the Lord's table were the only commands given to the church by Christ. So you have two commands given to us by Jesus, right? Right? You have one given to us in Matthew, which is go out into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And then the second one, which is at the upper room discourse, right before Jesus is about to die, uh, we are told that um, we are uh, given the, 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 Lord, the instructions for the Lord's table. Now, there are other things that the New Testament did, and they're helpful, So it's not that we only do, these are other commands, so there's other instructions, but they're not commands that are connected to these ordinances given by Christ. For instance, at the end of uh, Jesus' the Passover dinner, where he gave us these new instructions, they finished it by singing a a hymn or a psalm. For instance, Mark 14, 26 says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. And when they were all done with it, they sang a hymn. And from that, we take this observation within a service. They're singing, and even during the communion time, there's this moment of after we take communion, we reflect in song. So most of what we do, a lot of times we don't think about it, but it does come from like our structure, the public reading of God's word, us standing and reading God's word corporately together. That's because that was seen to be done in the Word of God. And the way in which we sing and the way in which we preach, we try and make sure that we're modeling it in such a way that reflects God's Word. So singing is good, and it's helpful, and it's a part of the church, but it's not given to us in the same way that the commands of Scripture are given to us as it relates to baptism and the table, right? The authority at which Christ puts on them. So the Lord's table was given to us by Christ's command at the Last Supper, as I already mentioned. And in these two ordinances, though which are directly given, these are the two that the church must obey. So if we didn't sing at the end of communion, that's okay. It's something they did but was not commanded, right? There's a lot of things in the New Testament. There's flexibility on it. Some people wait to they preach, they take the word's table, and then they sing. That's fine. Uh, And some sing only. That's a problem, right? So there's, there's, we, there, is, there are things that we have to have in there, which is the preaching and teaching of God's word. Uh, everything else is kind of, um, you know, it's, it's flexible, but these commands from Scripture are definitely important. So first of all, the reason there's only two ordinances or two sacraments is because those are the only two commands that Christ gave us. Here's the second point from Scripture. The sacraments utilize physical elements to signify God's grace toward the believer you know I don't give a lot of points so for the, all the note takers out there you're like ah something to write down <laughs> so I was thinking of you when I wrote this out the sacraments utilize physical elements right so water uh, wine bread physical elements to signify God's grace that flows to the believer and we use signs every single day and understand their meaning <laughs> for instance, there's a sign outside there that has a big C on it with Community Bible Church. Most of us understood what that sign was for and used that sign this morning to come in. So that signifies that sign is not the church, right? This is our church, this group of people, and we meet here. That sign simply directed you to where we meet. We meet here. Uh, the sacraments are, are not our... Are, are, sorry, the, uh, the, the sign that the sacraments represent is not the significance of itself. So Jesus is not pointing to the wine and the bread saying, this is my literal body, this is my literal blood, as the Roman Catholic Church does, but it's pointing us to something, just like being washed with water doesn't literally wash your sins away, but it's pointing us to something. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, I think was helpful. It says, the sacrament of baptism points to our identification with Christ by faith. So we identify with Jesus by faith in our baptism. The Lord's Supper points to the reality of our communion with him. In the case of the sacraments, the sign is secondary, outward, and visible. The reality is primary, inward, and visible. So it's secondary, meaning that it's purely there to make things visible for us so we know what it's pointing us to. The reformers often speak of this, these symbols as what we call the physical word of God, that part of God's word that we can actually see. For instance, can you see grace? No. Can you see the Spirit? No. Can you see the Spirit's work in you at regeneration? Not necessarily. You can see the results of it, but you can't see it. So these are these precious signs given us to God, by God to give us a visible representation of what's taking place. For instance, here's one that we get to see probably later today or tomorrow as the sun comes out. And as the sun comes out, there's a big bow in the sky, right? And what's that bow representing to us? It's a promise that God made toward us, a promise we can't see, though. Can you see the promise of God, the covenant he made with the world, that he would never flood the earth again? Can you see that? Other than that there is no flood. But the bow reminds you, oh yes, even though it may rain a lot and the parts of the earth may flood, he will never flood the earth again. And I'm reminded by that because of the bow that's in the sky, the rainbow that's in the sky. When we come to baptism, when we come to the Lord's table, God, uh, Jesus gave us two signs that as we see them, Those signs point to something. That's not the substance. It's purely the sign that's pointing us to the substance, which is God's grace in the lives of the believer. So when we are baptized, we are physically participating in a spiritual reality. So as you are brought down into the water, it says buried in the likeness of his death, right? And raised in the likeness of his resurrection. That is a physical aspect that you are participating in as it's pointing you to what? A a spiritual reality. Now, I want to say this again. Your baptism does nothing for your salvation. It's purely the sign of what's already taken place. And it's designed for your encouragement. It's that physical part for you to be reminded of that. And we take this from Paul in Romans chapter 6. So turn with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Paul is pointing these believers to remind them to what has happened to them and that their life should be adjusted to this. So Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, buried in the likeness of his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that Jesus, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. So he's, he's speaking of this concept of we are the whole symbol is to remind us and to demonstrate publicly for the church so we go into the the waters of baptism and we find ourselves immersed in the water and we bring ourselves back out one this is us identifying what's happened to us we have died with Christ and we've been raised to a new life right we have a new life within us the reason why we don't participate in sin anymore is he's saying that is what we died to and we strive in this new life that we have but that comes to us through the symbol of through this sacrament, this sacred gift of baptism. We are also identify ourselves now belonging not only through the death, burial, and resurrection, but this union in Christ. We read to you real quick Galatians 3.27. Just write this down. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So the symbol of us being baptized, it's, a, it's this outward connection of union. We have this even in our own culture. So I wear a wedding ring, and the reason I wear a wedding ring is to uh, identify with any potential onlookers that I'm one with someone else. I am not able to be one with anyone else because I'm already one with someone. Baptism is that outward expression to you as a church. I am now one with you. I have been baptized into Christ, and you publicly have witnessed this, and we are now one together. We are one congregation. We are one family together. So this is why in Acts, they were preaching the word of God. They believed, and what is it they said? They baptized them, and what? Added them to the family, because it was that outward identity that brought them in. So this outward physical sign is the benefit not only to you, it's a confirmation, a seal around you, but also it's for those, the benefit of the church and the members. Now there is, a, there is, when I was talking about a mystery earlier, that we kind of lose the mystery, I want to be clear. No sins are washed away in baptism. Nothing is related to your salvation is added to Baptism. But from Scripture, we are told that there is a strengthening of one's faith and the encouragement of one's faith as the Word of God is reflected in our baptism. Because where does God's power reside? It resides in His Word. And His Word is commanding us to participate in this physical sign. And in that physical sign, when we participate, something mysterious happens, and this is the mystery, our faith is encouraged. We see the sign... And we are encouraged to believe in God's promises because it's a seal upon us. Martin Luther, uh, he he (laughs) fought for the confusion here. Of course, he grew up in a context where baptism is what regenerated him and baptism is where he found his salvation. And he was constantly wrestling with, I mean, imagine being in a context where you're fighting against everyone that you know to trust Jesus Christ alone and everybody else is hating you and putting you on trial and trying to kill you. You think you might question yourself once in a while? Yes. I even question myself at times. when I'm like, am I? I, I know, you know, reform theology and what we're teaching and expository preaching is not the norm. Am I, am I like off here? And I have to go back to the truth of the word of God and say, I know what God's word says. So Luther often would find himself at his desk and he would take chalk as the story goes and he would write on his table in chalk two words. He would write, "Baptistus sum, meaning I have been baptized. And he was taking a symbol, a physical symbol, to remind him of a spiritual reality. I am secure in Jesus because he has washed me spiritually. And he reflected on the physical sign to remind him of the spiritual reality, which kind of leads me to my third point here. The sacraments are means of grace when they are properly administered. And it's important that I explain this point in detail. I I, I don't want to bring in the confusion as the Roman Catholics did here as somehow that grace is infused in baptism or grace is infused in the Lord's table. So as you take and you eat it, it's not somehow there's grace impacted in those crackers. Okay? Now, we are meeting in a location where a Catholic church used to meet. And there's actually back over here, there is a sink that the uh, goes down into the dirt. So we don't use it, it's kind of capped off because we don't want to put things into it. But that is there, so when the wine, the holy wine, is not uh, consumed, it needs to go back into the earth. We, we don't believe that. We don't believe that, and, and here is why. We're going to kind of work through this. Many uh, Protestants, I think, have overreacted to Roman Catholics' view here. Rightfully so, it's wrong. But just like in the charismatic movement, Uh, the Spirit's power, we're afraid of it, so we come over here and we don't ever talk about the Spirit. We don't ever acknowledge the Spirit's power. And I think over here we've done the same thing, where the importance and the relevance and the mystery behind the table has been lost because we don't want to be Roman Catholic, or we don't want to be a form of Lutheran. But God has specifically chosen these physical signs for the purpose of encouraging the believer's faith. And this should be taken seriously, and I think with great care, these signs are designed for us to acknowledge God's grace being given to us. Okay, that is the purpose of the sign, right? So it's a means of grace for us to acknowledge the grace that's been given to us. It's a visible, it's, it's a visible sign that we can see. Therefore, these physical signs strengthen the believer's faith because they remind us of God's grace towards us. How did we receive salvation? We received it, right? Did we earn it? No, it's a free gift of God's grace. So as we receive the blood and the wine, the body of Jesus Christ, that physical sign reminding us that we are feasting on him spiritually is what sustains us. Here's a long quote, but I found it super helpful from John Murray. He says this, Baptism is a means of grace and conveys blessing because it's the certification to us of God's grace. In the acceptance of that certification, we rely upon God's faithfulness. Bear witness to his grace and thereby strengthen our faith. What, what is key in the moment over the table? Is it our faithfulness or his? It's God's faithfulness. In the Lord's Supper, that significance is increased and cultivated, namely communion with Christ, participation of the virtue occurring from the body and his blood. We talked about this in John 6. So, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, it's this, this spiritual reality. Jesus is saying, Your life is sustained by feasting on me. Of course, if you don't understand the context of it, they are thinking cannibalism. He's thinking of a sign that's about to come from the upper room table, right? The Lord's Supper represents that which is continually being wrought to us, that which is continually, we are feasting on. We partake of Christ's body and blood through the means of the ordinance. We thus see that the ancient, the accent falls on the faithfulness of God and the efficacy resides in the response we yield to that faithfulness. So it's effective to us when we recognize that it's coming to us through the faithfulness of God, not through your faithfulness. How many of you have grown up in a context where right before you take the table, you've been warned to examine yourself because you don't want to take the table unworthily, right? It's very hard for you in this context to take the table unworthily. You want to know why? Because we don't eat a meal together when we take communion. Culture has changed. Normally when the the congregation would gather together, they would gather around a meal and then preach God's word and sing and then take communion. They were coming and gorging themselves and turning it into a party. And the servants who couldn't get there as early as those who had money, there was nothing left for them. And there was no care or courtesy. And basically, the more spiritual people ate and got there on time, the less spiritual, because they didn't have the blessings. That's who Paul's talking to. Some of you are getting sick because you're gorging yourself with this, because you don't understand the purpose. So, unless you are stealing the donuts from other people in there, you know, be be kind with those donuts. I brought those donuts for just that illustration this morning. <laughs> But there's no way that you're in there gorging yourself on the donuts, preventing someone else from participating in the Lord's table. Point being, you don't come worthily to the table. You can't. Because how do you position yourself to receive that what you don't deserve? That's grace. You never position yourself to receive something you don't deserve. Therefore, it's not grace. So don't confuse what Paul is saying. So when it comes to this mystery of us receiving God's grace, remind yourself it's the sign and the mystery is the spirit works within it. I don't know how. This is his work. But when the word of God is ministered over us through the table, it strengthens our faith. And that is the work of the Spirit and not ourselves. So we don't position ourselves to be strengthened. We don't position ourselves, Lord, I've been faithful here. Therefore, I deserve your grace. It's, Lord, I deserve nothing. And yet you give me your grace and I depend and live upon that. And then fourthly, because of time, I need to hurry. The sacraments are to bring confidence of God's seal upon us. And I think probably the most important part is this last part. The sacraments are to bring confidence of God's seal, or that stamp of approval, right, upon us. Now we understand, we don't use a lot of seals these days anymore. A couple of them we do. For instance, your passport, if you open it up, there's a stamp of United States seal on there, and that says, you are a citizen of the United States, right? You have the rights that belong there. That's a very important stamp. If you've ever been to another country, you want that on there and you want it to be legitimate, right? Or if you need something, you've made a covenant and you need it to be notarized, you need someone to legitimately seal that, yes, this promise that you've made is legitimate, then you can see that. But the sacraments should be seen in the same way. When you are baptized, that's God's physical stamp of approval upon you. Yes you are identifying with everyone else that God has changed you. And you are now embracing that seal, that sign. And every week that you reach and you take and you receive that physical sign, you are saying to all of us around us and to yourself, I believe that God's seal of his forgiveness and grace is upon me. And that grace is then implanted into our hearts. So, real quick, I'm going to just connect these last two. The seal of improvement through baptism and the Lord's table will be done. Baptism is connected to discipleship. For instance, if you're in Matthew 28, 18, 19, 20, it says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the seal of approval on your life is that you are Christ's disciples. And Jesus' authority from the Father says, this is the sign of poof, the seal. Be baptized. That is, a, that is weighty. He is saying that the way in which we identify with Christ and with each other is the seal of approval on our life, is baptism. It's that first step that we make to say, yes, I by faith trust that Jesus Christ has put me in union with him. Spiritually, he has washed over me. Spiritually, he's regenerated me. And I want you and myself to see what God has done in my life. So there's The celebration is always Christ, right? When we do baptism, the celebration is always Christ. And even going back to, real quick, Romans chapter 5, speaking of union with Christ, Paul says, For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So it's discipleship. We have made this decision to follow Christ in baptism because of what's been done. You're not baptized Therefore, you're all good. You're good, therefore you're baptized. We can't reverse that. And the moment you are baptized, it's that symbol of, I am one with Jesus, and I am one with you. And then secondly, we have that of the table. And as with baptism, the Lord's table is a seal upon the believer as well. We're not going to take the time this morning to read it, but 1 Corinthians, if you want to write it down, is a great description Of the command given to us in the Lord's table. I want you to notice one thing. When you go and read 1 Corinthians 11. Or you read the synoptic gospels. Where Jesus Christ gives us the explanation of the table. Is that the gospel is being proclaimed at the table. This is what defines us to be different from Rome. We aren't saying take, eat, and drink to receive grace. We're saying take... Eat and drink to remind you of the grace received. It's a symbol to remind you of grace received. That's why it's called a means of grace. It comes to you. The word of God is poured over you by taking a physical moment to embrace what God's or this physical, uh, the word of God become physical. So the spoken word, to recap, how is it we grow in our faith? How is it that God has designed it that we are to be strengthened in the church, to be strengthened in our faith? One, the spoken word which is the preaching and the teaching of his word, and number two, sacrament. So baptism and the Lord's table are designed to strengthen the believer's faith. Now, all three means given to the church are to be practiced in a corporate setting. So I'm going to go back to my introduction here. You do not baptize yourself, which most of us did this morning, if you believe in sprinkling. You do not preach to yourself. I'm not a fan of the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself every day. I don't like that phrase because it's not biblical. The proclamation of the word is brought to you. This is why as a pastor, I love to sit here and receive communion like you do. I want to receive God's word as you do. Because I need it as you do. You also... Do not take communion by yourself. Never in Scripture is there a command to go and take some bread and some wine and thank God for what He's done and eat it. Every single way and means that God has given us to grow as a believer for the strengthening of our faith is a corporate reality. Is a corporate reality. You know the one thing he did encourage us to do personally he says when you pray, go in private and depend upon God. And even in your prayer, is not about you. It's a dependence upon God. Because what are you admitting the moment you pray? You're admitting that you need something outside of yourself. The only personal side of your Christian walk is prayer. And that prayer is supposed to never cease. It's supposed to be that constant communion. So men, let's go ahead and get ready for the table this morning. And at church, as they get ready, I just want to say this to you. <clears throat> if you have not been baptized, I would encourage you to understand the the, the weight of that symbol, it's a wonderful, it's, it's a wonderful moment where you publicly are saying, I want for you all to know what has gone on in me, and I'm doing this out of love and obedience to my Father. The symbol he's given us is for my encouragement and for your encouragement. I would encourage you to uh, speak with someone or myself to to participate in that. I, and we're hoping to do a baptismal service during next few weeks uh, for sure on Easter to give you guys some time to think about it. And then this morning when we're about ready to take the table, this is what I want you to remember. That as the word of God is preached over you, there's a mystery that's happening and that mystery is the spirit will come and strengthen your heart in the weakness of your faith. I think this is where it was so helpful in the quote and the definition of the purpose. The purpose of baptism and the purpose of the word through sacrament is this for the strengthening of our weak faith. Lord, I believe. What does he say? Help my unbelief. We need to be strengthened. So, the emphasis and the purpose of our church, this is why we take table every week. This is why we exposit God's word. This is why we emphasize Christ and not ourselves, because that's how our strength is made new. Amen. Father, thank you for the hope that we have. I pray that right now that all of us would be united as one because of grace, we did not position ourselves here, but we come as humble beggars.